My wife and I spent two years in Alaska. Now, we didn't live in the mountains back then. We actually lived uh, uh, right at the edge of some foothills that opened up to a tundra, a vast tundra that extended about 80 miles. Well, extended hundreds and hundreds of miles, but it extended 80 miles to the south where there was a mountain range. And this mountain range was called the Alaskan Range, which rivals the splendor of the Rockies. Uh, it exceeds the splendor of the Rockies in every way. Well, we were 80 miles away from it, and there is this, this, this for those of you who have been uh, at some time of your life near a mountain range, I think you'll certainly identify with this, but I think we can all understand. There's a way that when you when you're looking at a mountain range from a distance, because we, because the visibility in, uh, of Alaska and the tundra was so flat, you could see the mountain range nearly every day. 80 miles away, it just loomed like uh, the teeth of a shark along the southern horizon. And this is the, the, the nature of, of a mountain range at a great distance. What ends up happening is the range, which is really quite deep, right? It's rows of mountains after rows of mountains, after rows of mountains, but at a great distance, if you're looking at a great distance, they all kind of superimpose themselves into one long flat line against the horizon that just looks like jagged teeth. And you can't figure out which ones are the really tall ones and which ones are the less tall ones because there's some really, really tall ones that are in a great distance, but they kind of pull themselves right up to the front of the range and they kind of look as though they're peers with the mountains that are on the front of the range. And it all begins to look kind of flat. Well, that is until you start to get into the mountains. So if, at 80 miles away, it's very flat. It's very like a, like a backdrop, a silhouette against the horizon. But as you approach the mountain range, you know, the first feelings of relief, as things start to go up and, and down again, what then begins to happen is you begin to realize there are, there's a whole host of smaller hills that are leading up to the mountain range. And in fact... What can happen is you can find yourself on a, on a, a rather small mountain, a 2,000-foot foothill. But you're, that becomes the dominant feature in your life, in your experience. I mean, you look out the car window and you can't even see the top of it because you're kind of winding up it. That's the dominant feature. That little hill becomes the big hill, and you cannot even see the 10,000-foot mountain behind that or the 12,000 behind that one or the 14 or the 20, in the Alaska range, Mount McKinley was there. And it was rarely visible. Because it was so far away, even though it loomed in excess of 20,000 feet in the air. But all of the, the closer mountains as you would get in would kind of occlude the, the, the view of the really big, dominant features in the mountain range. I'm giving you this image because it's, it's the best way that I can kind of understand the way that Old Testament prophecy kind of works itself out in Scripture. I, this, I view Old Testament prophecy as a distant view of the mountain range. That when the prophets are given a word from God, a lot of times they're looking at the revelation of God at such a great distance that things appear flat to them. If you've ever read some of these prophets, you'll find that, that there is, seems to be no apparent delineation between 
the advent of Christ and the judgment of mankind. The day of the Lord just seems to be all the same. Because they're looking at the range from such a great distance away that there's not a lot of depth and relief in the revelation of God. It's just, it's just they see the features. They see the really tall mountains. They can see the peaks of those, but in front of them they see other mountains that are less high, and they kind of see all of that as the revelation of God. That's the first thing, that's the first thing that you can uh, kind of hold on to with understanding Old Testament prophets is they're looking from a great distance. And then there is this other idea that, that shows up with Old Testament prophecy. Oftentimes, the Old Testament prophets are given a word from God, but they're on a hill of their own life. There's a hill that's in their own setting, in their own context, some issue, and they have no hope of being able to see the big idea. It's, it's, it's huge. It's a huge idea. But when you're stuck on a hill, you can't see over it. And so there's a lot of times when the Lord gives a revelation to a prophet that it is immediately true in their context, but it's not nearly as important as its eternal truth or as the bigger truth. In other words, the Lord is speaking of the big mountain. He's speaking of Mount McKinley or or one of these larger mammoths in the range, but because the prophets can't see that because they're dealing with the sins of Jerusalem, in this case, in the case of Habakkuk, or the impending invasion of the Babylonians, those are the issues of their time. The Lord gives them a revelation that is in keeping with their context, but he has the big mountain in mind. I'll give you a very brief example, and then we'll turn to Habakkuk. In Isaiah 7, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and offers, offers him a word from the Lord. King Ahaz rejects it, and Isaiah gives it a word to him anyway, and it's this. Uh, the Hebrew says this, a maiden, a young maiden will be with child and we will name him Emmanuel. Okay, we, you are probably very familiar with that. Certainly, as deep into the mountain range as we are, we know what the big idea is. I mean, we've seen the mountain of Christ. And so when we hear Isaiah chapter 7, that, that a maiden or a virgin will be with child and this child will be named God with us, and, and all the, the subsequent things that are said about it, we say, well, that's Jesus. Well, just imagine for a second, what do you think King Ahaz said to that? I think he would go, what are you talking about? That means nothing to me. I mean, how can we expect King Ahaz and even Isaiah to have a sense of what that really, really really means. That mountain is so far away, and right now the city is being surrounded by the enemy. So you know what Isaiah chapter 8 has? Isaiah chapter 8 begins this way. Isaiah goes to the home of a prophetess. She conceives and gives birth to a son. Now, we don't ever talk about that because it's unimportant to us. In fact, that's, it's only one sentence. It's one sentence, and it essentially moves on. What they're showing you is, is that God gave an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy in a very small way, even though the real deep fulfillment of that prophecy was going to happen in a big way in the distant future. It's just those people were not able to see it. Do you see the kind of the depth that is required in prophecy? There's kind of a, it's true now, but it's going to be more true later. Or it's like this, but it's going to be even better or bigger or more real in the years to come. You can oftentimes expect with Old Testament prophecy a very near fulfillment. 
that is in keeping with the kind of way God will behave at the very end. That's, that's how he works. And I'm saying all of this to say that you could subtitle this, this sermon or this message the next two Sundays, this Sunday and next Sunday, you could subtitle the book of Habakkuk as the Apocalypse of Habakkuk. This is his version of John's revelation. And this morning we're going to begin to get into it and try to understand kind of this layered depth that occurs with the prophets. So if you would, open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 652. Otherwise, good luck. Now, while you're turning there, let me, let me just refresh for you what's happened in this book so far. Habakkuk is um, someone who is complaining to the Lord in prayer. And he's complaining because he sees wicked and terrible things happening in his own city among his own people. He's frustrated. There's brokenness and pain and hurting and injustice and perversion and wickedness. He knows that God knows it. He knows that God despises it. He knows that God's holy, and he knows that God could do something about it, and he sees that God has done nothing. And so he says to the Lord, when are you going to do something about this? How long am I, a person, going to have to kind of indict my own people before you do something about it? To which the Lord says, well, I've been busy. I have been laboring with great patience an object of wrath that is going to come in and utterly destroy Jerusalem. And I've called this object Babylonia. Well, when Habakkuk hears this, he kind of drops his jaw, and uh, if you could translate it uh, into modern English, it would be almost like a you-gotta-be-kidding-me kind of attitude of, really, you're going to... Now, I know we're bad, but he kind of says to the Lord... As bad as we are, how is it that you, the God of justice, is going to use a people even more wicked than ourselves as the, the vehicle or the vessel of wrath against us? How, how is it that you can do that? That we're bad, but we're not nearly that bad. How is it that you call that just? And today we arrive at the answer. And the answer comes in the form of a prophecy that is ageless. So, so far, Habakkuk and God have been kind of having a dialogue back and forth, and it's been very personal. God's speaking to Habakkuk, Habakkuk's speaking to God. Nothing that's been said so far is earth-shattering. There's no new news here. Jeremiah is walking through the streets touting the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the Babylonians. There's, Habakkuk is not bringing any new information so far to the world. Until now. And the Lord begins to speak. I want to read the first, uh, or verses 2 and 3. We're going to slow down because after that and kind of talk about it. But read 2 and 3 with me. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. 
Now that may sound uh, somewhat insignificant to you. Actually, something very significant just happened. The Lord is setting us up to hear words that are of great import. And so I want us to walk through 2 and 3 again very slowly to try to, to, try to understand what exactly is being said. Here, look, look with me. How does it start? It says this, write down the revelation. On what? What does it say? Write it down on tablets. Write the revelation down on tablets. What does that remind you of? If you're thinking back to things written on tablets. Yeah, the Ten Commandments, right? This is a clear allusion to the kind of, of, of thing that happened to Moses on the mountain. God is saying to, right now to Habakkuk, I'm going to say something to you that you need to write into stone. Does that sound like the way God's going to answer Habakkuk's little problem right now with Babylonians? Write this in stone. No, the, don't you hear that the, 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 the magnitude of the message that's coming? The Lord is saying, Habakkuk, I have a word for you. The word is so much bigger than you. It's so much bigger than your problem, Habakkuk. You're sitting on this foothill. Your, your whole life is absorbed with Babylonia and the wickedness of Jerusalem. My answer is of a mountain so far away and so big, you just can't see it yet. So write it down on stone tablets. It's absolutely significant. It's not just significant in its meaning. It's significant in its duration. Write it down on tablets. There's a resolute permanence to this idea that what he's going to write down, what Habakkuk's going to carve into the tablets is going to have a lasting truth about it, that it's set in stone. It's, it's a forever true kind of thing. You know, Habakkuk's just talking about his city. But God's answer is bigger than that. It, by the way, note, and uh, we don't have too much time to look at this, but if you look at chapter 1, or if you're familiar with chapter 1, does the Lord say, and the Lord's answer in verse 5, 1 verse 5, so Habakkuk complains to the Lord, the Lord comes back, does the Lord say to him, write this down in tablets? No. The earlier revelation that came to Habakkuk, there's no write it down in tablets. It's prophetic, but it's not essentially prophetic. And incidentally, it's full of proper nouns. It's full of the Babylonians are going to come. Very particular details. God's dealing with the foothill that Habakkuk is on, this issue. When you get to chapter 2, there are no more proper nouns. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, these sorts of things are translated he. He will come. Don't you see the way the language is loosening up to have more eternal consequence? Write it down. And then it becomes much more general. So he says, write it down on tablets. And then he says this, make it plain so that a herald can run with it. Make it plain on these tablets so that a herald may run with it. A herald running with it is just uh, kind of an Old Testament phrase of saying, so it can be proclaimed. So, so the Lord is saying, write it on tablets in such a way, in such a clear way that it, it can be proclaimed by others. By others, not you, Habakkuk. So the, the, the prophecy that is about to come to Habakkuk has this permanence about it. It has this significance about it. And it's going to extend beyond the life of Habakkuk. The Lord doesn't say, write it on tablets so that you can herald it. It says, so that others, other heralds, can read it, understand it, and proclaim it to the world. There is kind of a duration and a range for this message that extends beyond Habakkuk. It will outlive him, and it will outdistance him. 
And then the Lord says this. For the revelation, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It awaits an appointed time. The Lord's telling Habakkuk, in fact, you need to write it on a tablet because you're not even going to be around when this comes true. Notice it says it speaks of the end. It's not speaking of later or in a while or after. It says it speaks of the end. Now, in some ways, that could deal with the end of Jerusalem as far as as the subjugation. But in a more general way, what is about to be said by the Lord deals with the end. It deals with the end time. That, that, that in, his, in, in the, the remaining text, essentially, of the book of Habakkuk, you can almost read as, as an apocalypse, as the revelation, as the end time theology as given to Habakkuk. That what is being written now is dealing with the end of all things. Habakkuk, write it on a tablet so it's clear, so that people can proclaim it because it speaks of an appointed time that is at the end And this word awaited, I enjoyed, I enjoyed learning this so much this week. This word awaited, it, it literally translates pants. Not like pants. Like, uh, like, like yearning. It's a yearning. It, it's, it, it's yearning for the appointed time. It's panting. It's breathlessly awaiting the appointed time. You know, when we wait on the Lord, so often we walk away, whether we think it or not, we walk away going, is the Lord paying attention? Is he, is he not taking me seriously? Is he not taking all of this seriously? Is, he, is, he, is there laziness here? What's going on? The, the, the writer here is saying, when God is waiting for the appointed time, he's not filing his fingernails. He's bre- the spirit is breathless in the anticipation. It's waiting, it's, it's, it's a spirit of precision not a spirit of laziness, that the spirit is waiting for the precise moment. He's not going to be a second too late or a second too early. There is this breathless, panting anticipation to fulfill God's will at exactly the right moment. That's what's being said here. And that time is the end. So do you hear what what God is saying here? Habakkuk says, how can you judge injustice with on the unjust. How is your justice even landing on the earth? How is it working? I don't understand this. And the Lord says this, you have a great question. It's an important question. It's the big question. So I want you to write it. I want you to carve it. I want you to send it. I want you to herald this answer. That this answer that I'm about to give you will come to fruition at the end of things. At the very end of things, it will come to the resolution of this question, this question, which is one we have, right? Habakkuk's not the first, and he's certainly not the last to ask this question. The resolution of the wickedness and justice on the earth will be the last thing resolved. God closes the instructions this way. He says, it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come, he says. What do you think he means there by it will not prove false? I think there's a suggestion here that God's answer will defy the appearances. 
Why is God having to encourage Habakkuk or the heralds who carry the message? It will not prove false unless when it happens, it would not appear to those of us looking or listening for it that it actually happened. In other words, God is saying, my ways are going to contradict your expectations. Trust me on this. I will not prove false. It will come through. It will not look like it's coming through. It will not look like I'm doing what I'm doing. Trust me. It will not prove false. You just have to wait and you'll see. So Habakkuk complains about the injustice and God says, I'm not going to just give you the answer, not the answer for your city or for the Babylonians. I'm going to give you the answer. The big answer to the big question. I'm about to give it to you. Write it down and listen. So are you ready? You guys are like, yes, we're ready. It's only like two verses. So I didn't mean to drum it up, but you ready? By the way, by the way, so verses 4 and 5 are the heart of this message. In fact, many scholars think this is, this is the message. 6 and following, which is what we read this morning during our prayer, it gives depth and color to 4 and 5. But 4 and 5 are the heart of the message here. All right, you ready? Here we go. Verse 4. See? He is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and takes captive all peoples. That is the timeless prophecy of Habakkuk. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. God's talking about two groups here. There's two groups. There is the wicked he, the arrogant he, and there there is this righteousness. In fact, verses 4, the first part of verse 4, see he is puffed up, his desires are not upright. It connects right with verse 5. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Do you see how they connect together? That he who is puffed up is this arrogant person who is big on his own self-opinion. He's full of his own accomplishments. He's deluded. He's drunk on himself. He is addicted to the unquenchable thirst for power or fame or recognition. He's the king in his own eyes. He is his own sovereign. He is his own master. He's full of greed. There's never enough. He steps on others and he subjects those around him to his own interests. This is the wicked he that God is talking about. And this person is the target of judgment. He will perish. He's doomed. 6 and following explains his doom, talks about how his tables will be overturned and how his life will be put on end and how he who is as greedy as the grave will enter into the grave. There's that, that all kind of follows in the taunt of the woes that we read. But, but it's certainly he's set apart from, but the righteous will live by his faith. So see, he who is puffed up is about to perish, but the righteous will live. I found the translation called the message particularly insightful this week. 
This is how he. This is how they translated uh, verse four about the the wicked he. It says this: Look at that man, bloated by self-importance, full of himself but soul empty. Now there's another group, and this group is the righteous. It says this: But the righteous will live by his faith. And there's two ideas here. There's two ideas I think we need to process through to understand this. The first is this idea of righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? Because when some of us hear the word righteous, when we talk about righteous, some of us immediately gravitate to the idea of having done nothing wrong. That is not at all what this is saying. When we think righteous, we equate it with sinless. When we think righteous, we think of someone who is pure of any wrongdoing. That's not, that's rarely the way the Old Testament uses the word. And it's, 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 it's rarely the meaning in Scripture. Usually what happens, and particularly in this case, the righteousness that's being given is in a judicial sort of way. Not an ethical sort of way. He's not saying the righteous, because they've done everything right, are going to live. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying those people, righteous means right standing with God. Those people who stand right with God, he's saying will stand right with God because of their faith. This is a judicial, imagine a courtroom. This is a courtroom where there was wrongdoing that was done, but that they were being deemed righteous in a passive sort of way. It's not active righteousness. They have not actively lived perfect lives. They have passively received righteousness from God because of faith. This is very important. When you read Psalm 119, when you read all, so many of the Psalms when it says, I'm righteous before the Lord, the claim there is not, David is not saying, or Job is not saying, I have never done anything wrong. That's not at all what they're saying. What they're saying is, is I stand right before you because of your goodness. You see the idea? It's not active. It's not what we've done. They are righteous because of how God sees them. It is judicial. They're deemed righteous. It's passive. They receive righteousness. To those who are faithful, they are deemed righteous. This to me is the path This is the dangerous path that sits right along the path to salvation that that so many of us have been on, that so many of us by accident preach to others, or that the church by and large, because it has not wanted to preach a faithful gospel, has allowed to kind of bubble up with this I'm good enough gospel. That when you hear people say, well, I've done enough good things, what they're saying is, is I am actively righteous enough. God would say, see, you're puffed up and you're not upright and you're arrogant. But we say, well, I've done enough. I haven't done anything bad. They're presuming some kind of active self-righteousness. In their own eyes, they've done enough good. God is saying, that is not the righteousness that I'm talking about. The righteousness I'm talking about comes by faith and faith alone and no other way. It's passive. It's received. It's a gift that has been given not something that has been earned or attained. So 
Sometimes I think because we don't treat God as, as righteous as he is, as ethically and actively righteous as he is, we preach a false gospel to those who say, I'm good enough. And then there is this word faith. But the righteous will live by his faith. The best way to understand this word faith, the way, it, it, the way if you could kind of translate it out, is steadfast trust. That's what this faith is. That's what faith is. Faith is steadfast trust. It's trust that endures in the Lord. It endures beyond the warm fuzzy of a message, beyond a Sunday, beyond a service, beyond a week. It's the kind of faith that endures into questions. It endures in hardship. It endures despite the fact that things are not as they seem. You trust that the Lord says, it will not prove false. Trust me. And that kind of faith endures. This is how it was translated in the message. I think this is so good. But the person in right standing before God through loyal and steady believing is fully alive. Really alive. We gain our righteousness through faith. And this is, this is so important. There will come a day when we have to answer to the Lord for what we've done, all that we've done. And I believe in, on that day in some way the accuser will stand before us and before the Lord and accuse us of our unrighteousness. And our only, our only defense is the righteous will live by faith. He will say to us, you have coveted. You've coveted after her. You've coveted after it. You've wanted it. And we'll, what, what do we say to that? But the righteous will live by his faith. You've lied. You've been a thief. You've lusted. You've had hatred in your heart, which Christ says is murder. You are a murderer, is what the accuser will say. And if you even begin to put a defense other than the righteous will live by faith, you'll be puffed up. We have all dishonored our parents. We have all refused to rest in God. We've all made light of his person, made light of his name. We have used his name as punchlines in our own jokes. We've all trusted after money and health and our minds and our families. We've piled idols, idols after idols after idols up so that we can't even see the mountain of God because we have this massive pile of idols in front of us. Every one of us started this conscious life as God-haters, not as God-lovers. We are guilty of the ten. But the righteous will live by his faith. Is this your prayer? Is this your defense? When you come to the Lord, is this what your defense is? Is Jesus your salvation? Is Jesus the righteousness that's been given to you? If it isn't, then you're arrogant. Then it's nothing but arrogance. And you will be taunted in your peril by the scriptures. God will taunt you. The saints will taunt you. In your arrogance. You are your own grave. This woe, the woes you see in Scripture here, one commentator translated them, ha! Ha! That's what will be said to some of us. When we arrive in heaven and we say, well, I did this, ha! 
the message translated it, who do you think you are? This is the apocalypse of Habakkuk. At the very end of time, at the appointed time in the end, God says this, the arrogant will perish. Relax, Habakkuk. The arrogant will perish. They're puffed up. They're full of themselves. They have built their own demise. And in one short moment, I will flip them on their head and they will be taunted by my righteousness. And in the same vein, the Lord says, and the righteous Habakkuk will live by their faith. It doesn't seem that way right now. You see hardship. You see people... You see people who love the Lord who are falling on hard times or who are dealing with things. The Lord says, look, trust me, it will not fail. And it's appointed time at the very end. The righteous will live by their faith. The arrogant will suffer in their peril and be taunted in judgment. The universe is fine. That's God's answer. Habakkuk says, how is this just? God says, look, at the end of time, Beyond an amount you can't even begin to perceive, I've got it all taken care of, it's all covered, the righteous live by faith, the arrogant perish, who are you? That is the apocalypse of Habakkuk. Though it linger, trust and wait for it. I want to close with this. There, I was m- mindful of how has this message been heralded down Scripture, right? The Lord told Habakkuk, write it on stone so that it can be heralded. Well, was it heralded? Has it been heralded? Here's the interesting thing. Romans, the, God, the book of Romans, opens with this verse. Romans 1.17 says, A righteousness of God has been brought to us as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The whole book of Romans is built upon Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. Galatians, Paul says again, builds the book around the idea that the righteous will live by faith. The writer of Hebrews comes back right before the chapter 11 of faith and says the writers of old knew what they were talking about. The righteous will live by faith. Even the Hebrew rabbis before Christ said what Moses expressed in 613 laws, Habakkuk expressed in one. The righteous will live by faith. I want to read you this. this. This is a conversion experience I stumbled on last night. It's long, so you've got to listen carefully. But I want you to hear this. This is from the 1500s. This man is writing, and he's wrestling with this righteousness of God that's been revealed. That verse in Romans, this righteousness of God that's been revealed, he says, it stood in my way. He said, I hated that word, righteousness of God which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand as regarding formal and active righteousness. He's saying that it had been taught, you need to actually be good. He said, I hated it. As they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Then he says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he had, was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, 
if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God to add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunely upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. And then he says this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, the righteous, the righteous will live by faith, namely that passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus the place in Paul was for me the gate of paradise. This is the conversion of Martin Luther. This is what we need to herald. It's written down in stone. We need to herald this. The righteous will live by faith. Everyone else will perish. Everything else will perish. But the righteousness of God through faith.